Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Welcome, everyone, to another weekly debrief. Each week, Brian and I take on a case from our backlog of must-see films that either one of us or both of us have yet to see. And our debrief will provide not only our opinion of the film, but will also discuss its significance and influence in both the film industry and society as a whole. Along the way, we'll also provide other fun trivia and insights on the film. So, Brian, what was our mission this week? If you had sung the title of the last movie we did, In the Heat of the Night, like that movie had done with his title, I would probably sing Blue Velvet. Which is weird that we have two movies back to back in which the title is the opening song for the movie. But yeah. since you weren't brave enough to uh, to sing and inspire me, I'm not going to sing Blue Velvet <laughs> for any of you guys. I'm sorry. Oh man. Sorry yeah. guys. My fault. <laughs> but it really is a strange world, Caitlin. And David Lynch is definitely here to make a stranger. Uh, even mm-hmm. if it's one of his more tamed films, quote unquote. You know, even if it's just a neo noir, Lynch is going to get a little weird. Uh, as shown in today's assignment, and I mentioned the title, or I mentioned the title of the song, which is the title of the movie, Blue Velvet. A movie I have seen, but Caitlin, you have not experienced, correct? Correct. And what was holding you back? I know you weren't really big into David Lynch. You watched one of his movies recently. Uh, how come we're doing this movie now? I wouldn't say I wasn't too big into David Lynch. Uh, I mean, I've been wanting to get more into him for a while now. Because the only one I had seen previously was Mulholland Drive, which you put on for us during an all-night movie marathon, which I don't think was the appropriate time to put on the Lynch movie. (laughs) I don't think my brain was working enough then. If it was played earlier, probably it would have been good. (laughs) I do want to revisit that one. Because I have heard good things and I I just don't think I was in the right place when I watched it. Uh, Since then, I've also watched uh, Wild at Heart, which is uh, Laura Dern and Nick Cage. And I wasn't a fan of that one either. But I did just recently, in kind of a preparation for this episode, I watched Inland Empire. And it's one I've actually been wanting to watch for a long time because I heard it's one of Laura Dern's best performances. And I, of course, am a big Laura Dern fan. So I watched that one and I actually really enjoyed Inland Empire. It's a lot to to sort through in your brain, um, but I kind of enjoyed the process of unpacking it. So I wanted to watch Blue Velvet as well because I knew that this was considered probably his best film or at least one of the top ones. Most of the list I've seen have listed this as his best, but there are of course some that say otherwise. But I've been wanting to watch this one uh, because I just wanted to understand the love of Lynch because he's definitely a, a director that gets a lot of, has this cult fan base, I would say. Yeah, he definitely does. Uh, I guess because all of his movies are cult movies, those who follow are just cult members. <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, of course I got into David Lynch. Uh, we kind of talked before with Old Boy. You know, when you're young and you're watching, you're watching those edgy movies, you're watching like those really profound and abstract ones just so you can throw on your beret and talk to some people mm-hmm. in a coffee house about it. You know, that's, yeah, yeah I'm not gonna lie. That was, that was me. Still am a bit today. Oh, I think my views are a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more concrete, I guess. Not as pretentious. And I watched Mulholland Drive. That was the first one I watched. I think it was just because it was one of the 1001 movies to watch before you die. And I just put that one on, and I was like, oh, this is fantastic. 
uh, yeah, I played it for us at a movie marathon, and I've been getting crap about it for years, to which I never understood. Because <laughs> for for like a while, I said, it was just bad timing. It was bad timing for that type of movie. <laughs> it was bad timing for that type of movie, but I also don't understand because Coleman gave me crap, but Coleman liked the movie before. Like Coleman and I, we talked on the phone. He won't admit it, but we talked on the phone about Mulholland Drive <laughs> after we both watched it in separate states, uh, and then. For a while, it wasn't until like last year you guys realized that it's not even like my top 10 favorite movie. Yeah, we probably thought it was. Yeah, it, I don't know whatever gave that impression. I think because I was so, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe because I was like defensive about you just getting on, on me for for putting the movie on. So like you saw how defensive <laughs> I was. I was like, man, he must really love that movie. I feel like too, like not being like as aware of Lynch and, and like in Lynchian type themes at the time, like I just was just taken aback. Like I was not ready. Like you had to be prepared for that. <laughs> oh, not not I. I went in blind with Mohan Drive was my first one, and that one was <sighs> that was something. Also, there was that singing scene, and we know how Coleman is a singing scene, and me too, honestly. Once you put in someone singing for an extended period of time in a movie, I'm I'm, I'm checked out. <laughs> Coleman has seen the movie and liked it before, <laughs> so he knew the singing scene was coming up. I don't know. Your word against his. <laughs> yeah, and then I've seen Inland Empire as well before, and honestly, I need to watch it again. I know you said that you saw... Um, you saw references or at least a relation to Sunset Boulevard in there. So I'll probably watch it after I watch Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this movie, though this is one of those movies, again, that I watched and immediately I just forgot about. Not like that the movie was, I mean, I guess literally it was forgettable, but not because it was bad. It's just, I, I don't know. Like, for some reason, I think it's just because I was watching this late at night. Like, I used to do movie marathons and it would take me to like three or four o'clock in the morning. So this may have been like the third one I watched. And it was like three o'clock at night and I may have set my mind to, you know, be ready for lunch and I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. So maybe like I was already overanalyzing it. Uh, now, is that the same this time around? Well, we're going to go ahead and talk about it. And before we talk about it, I just let you guys know that there will be no spoilers for this first portion as always. However, when we do get to that portion, the second, well, I guess like it's not really the second half. Usually it's like the last third or quarter. Uh, we'll go ahead and warn you of the spoilers. Now, this is a movie with some acclaim. It has a 7.7 on IMDb. It has a 95% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes with an 88% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I thought the audience rating would be a bit lower. I thought this kind of turned off some people. This was nominated for Best Director at the Academies. That's the only award it was nominated for. Surprisingly, not Best Picture. Usually when you have Best Director, you have Best Picture as well, especially for this year. And it was also in the 1001 movies to watch Before You Die. Yeah, when this first came out, originally it did receive mixed reviews with its sexual and explicit content being a source of controversy. It was called shocking, surreal, and altogether just weird, uh, which is very Lynchian. (laughs) Uh, But so many critics and audience members responded poorly to the film. And it's a type of film that had reports of multiple theater walkouts, which is it's something we kind of hear a lot about nowadays. I feel like every time something slightly controversial plays at Cannes, it's like, oh, yeah, there was so many walkups. Everyone was crying and throwing up. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't understand that. I guess for one movie recently at Cannes, I could see people walking out of, but it was voted the best movie of Cannes. And that was Titan. Titan mm-hmm. I wanted to walk out of. I mean, yeah, but not for the same reason. Yeah, yeah, not because it was shocking or anything, just because it was bad. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> that, that's why I wanted to walk out. <laughs> but like, I feel like we hear it all the time, and it is definitely used as a bit of a marketing ploy, I think. Because then you watch the movie, and it's like, this isn't really about talking. <laughs> yeah, and then also Cannes and many other festivals are the same ones that have like 10-minute standing ovations. So mm-hmm. It's so hard to take the word you know, of it until you actually see the movie and you're like, okay, that was deserving. Yeah. But regardless, this film did have some positive reviews as well with praises for the same surrealism that was criticized and, but also for performances. The performances definitely got a lot of positive feedback on. You mentioned David Lynch was nominated for Best Director at the Oscars, but the screenplay was also nominated for Best Screenplay at the Golden Globes, along with a Best Actor nomination for Dennis Hopper. Uh, Isabella Rossellini did win Best Female Lead at the Independent Spirit Awards, and Dennis Hopper won Best Actor at the Montreal World Film Festival, where the film premiered. Uh, There was also several other awards that were won from the LA Film Critics Association and the National Society of Film Critics. Uh, And nowadays, the film is definitely received more favorably overall. like I said, this is definitely considered Lynch's best film in a lot of different lists, and it has become a cult film, as we mentioned, with David Lynch in general being a cult director. The film did receive a 4K restoration Blu-ray release from the Criterion Collection in May 2019, and it's also listed within a lot of best of lists as one of the best films of the 80s, best mystery films, and just one of the best films overall. You know, this is probably going to be the one David Lynch film that has a rather straightforward plot. I guess, uh, because I cannot tell you the plot of Mulholland Drive. <laughs> I can tell you how it starts, and you just you just go for the ride from there. Uh, this movie, however, like I mentioned, it's a neo noir. Jeffrey, this kid who's back from from school, I'm not sure what grade he's in. Uh, he's definitely a college student, but he's back from school after his father is uh, is hospitalized for an incident that they don't disclose. I'm guessing he had a stroke. But he's back home, and during his time home, he comes upon a human ear. You know, when you're just walking around and there's just severed parts. Most mm-hmm. of us would probably be like, eh, you know, we see it all the time. No big deal. But Jeffrey, he takes an interest in this ear. And he brings it to uh, a detective that he knows. And he gets some information, and he himself starts to get kind of curious where this ear came from. And just kind of the mystery that's going on in this small town. And... He himself starts looking into it and gets pulled into a world that he would not have expected. And yes, he finds himself just going further in this mystery. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go all in, even when he should be like, you know what? It's about time I get out. Caitlin, this being your first time watching the movie, what did you think? So I I mentioned I just watched Inland Empire, and I do think I kind of shot myself in the foot a little bit in doing so. Yes. Uh, because Inland Empire is definitely a very complex film that, like I said, I really needed to unpack. And this wasn't that. This is a very straightforward film for, you know, for Lynchian standards. And I was a little bit disappointed in that regard by this film. But there are a lot of things that I do like and I do appreciate. And I think if I didn't go in with that expectation, I probably would have liked this more um the visuals of this the lighting the cinematography the cover grading it's fantastic it's very artful and purposeful and it does have some surreal elements in it and i was engaged with the story the whole time that this film was running i do think though that the story towards its conclusion it did lack for me 
I was expecting more twists and turns than what I got. Uh, so that was a little bit disappointing for me. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen some David Lynch. Uh, I think I did set the bar kind of high for myself on this one as well, just thinking that was going to be a little bit more. Because like I said, I couldn't remember it too much. But the two scenes that really did stick out, they played out like I remember. And they are very David Lynch-like. They are some rough and odd scenes at the whole time. Like, it, mm-hmm. And there's even like a bit of a bit of like comedy can kind of be found in it. It's just how ridiculous it gets. But it's it's just a it's a wide range of, you know, emotional impact in those scenes that are just really great. Uh, they're not continuous throughout the film. Like you said, the, the film is pretty straightforward. It, it really is. I like what I like more watching it this time that I took an interest in is the character Jeffrey. Uh, he doesn't really go so much down a d- uh, developmental you know, uh, character line, but it is interesting that he is a naive kid. Like he's only here to see his father and he gets pulled into this world that he would have never expected before. And then also this being a really like, this is a suburban neighborhood for the most part. Like, uh, they, you know, they even have like the, it's a small town that works off of one type of industry and that's the lumber industry, which the radio host in the morning will not let you forget. Because he throws out like every wood, timber, lumber pun out there that I absolutely respect. Uh, so, I mean, I still I still enjoyed it for a noir film. Yeah, that, you know, we kind of talk about with the In the Heat of the Night. Uh, this one doesn't have any twists uh, either. But, you know, I still had a good time with it. I think even more with In the Heat of the Night, like there were some scenes that, you know, really brought the movie up that got you re-engaged with it and really, you know... Were, were impactful, uh, were a bit strange. And I like that. Is it the best noir film? Um, you know, I'll put it, I'll put it up there. I'll put it up there. Like, is it the best mystery film? No, I wouldn't give it that. Uh, like you said, it's straightforward. There's barely any twists. I do like the way it ended. Uh, I know this movie was also really cut down. Like there's, it was supposed to be four hours at first. That was the original cut. And there are 50 minutes of deleted scenes as well. So I don't know if that will, you know, bring it up at all or if you want to go down that that lane. <laughs> but what what we got here, yeah, I, th- I think it is a, a great film or a, a rather good film. I don't know if I'll say great. You know, we, we'll have to talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, I definitely liked the setting for this film because you kind of do go to that 50s small town vibe i know lynch had said he wanted to return to the 1950s euphoric chrome optimism as he called it and i think that he did a good job of portraying that and you see these visuals with these these colors these really vibrant blues and yellows and greens and reds uh and you see that and you have the music too that's going along with it and you are awed by the visuals that are presented but at the same time there's just like this haunting vibe to it you know that there's going to be a seedy underbelly and that this you know this idyllic small time vibe isn't going to last and so that juxtaposed with like some of the more darker images um some of the more darker locales it it, it does really lend itself to some really good filmmaking and some really good storytelling and I think that fits with the symbolism of the blue velvet here. I think in the in different lightings, blue velvet can give different tones. And when you have less mm-hmm. lighting, the blue velvet looks more looks more eerie. It 
looks less mm -hmm. uh, harmonic. And then when it's lit up, you're like, oh, man. And, and we get a balance between that in this town. We see it during the night and during the day. And it definitely has a different feel because Lynch does fantastic with the light. Uh, and he mm -hmm. kind of puts like a spotlight on things that is, is, is really interesting. And I like how the small town, how he built it. Uh, like thinking back at it now, yeah, there's some there's some things in there that tells you like, hey, this is a small town, this is a suburban neighborhood, but it doesn't feel like it's beating you over the head. It doesn't. There's none of the big cliches over there. Uh, it's not like, yeah, people kind of know each other, but it's not like the sheriff. You know, the sheriff who says mm -hmm. hi to everybody. It's not. No one's at the diner. It's like, hey, can I get you the usual? Nothing like that. Yeah. Uh, so he he does a really good job uh, building it up. And somebody, uh, I think with the performance as well, everybody's given a unique performance. And one of the best ones here is Dennis Hopper, who I really liked this time around. Dennis Hopper is, his character, Frank, is insane and intense. Yeah. He, he is a great villain. He is, a, he is such a good juxtaposition to, to the town, to Jeffrey, because it's like, yes. you would not picture this type of guy in this like him alone, like there didn't even need to be any kind of criminal activity. Just the fact that this man existed was enough mm -hmm. to make like what? Who who bred this man here? Yeah, and he's a character that in a different film I think we would understand him more. And I think that was something that was throwing me off of this film. Cause he's just so out there. He's so insane and the things that he does is so so odd. And there is that sort of evilness to him, but like none of it really makes sense. He's like almost larger than the film in many ways. And Lynch doesn't go out of his way to to explain what's going on there. You just kind of have to accept him for how he is. And it, it's it's an interesting way of viewing the movie. And did, did it work for you, though, the performance or did you find it a bit much? Um... I think that the performance was good. I think that it got that kind of shocking reaction, but I don't think that his acting was necessarily catered just for shock value, if that makes sense. Okay, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and uh I mean, it's it's a character who drops the F bomb for uh, at least one to two times in every sentence, every line, not every not every paragraph, no, like every other word. He's dropping the F bomb and then I think like any time it'll be just you know like you said larger than life kind of pull you out of the movie but i think like the way they set up this character is just yeah he's just something something else mm -hmm. and it it works i mean dennis hopper makes it he makes it work yeah yeah even like the way he because i mean he's doing a drug i forget what the drug is called but you know he's he's not even doing a regular drug he's putting on a uh an oxygen mask and breathing something in. Something that he has attached to his hip. Something portable. And he's taking hits of that. And, you know, I'm not going to say his kink is weird. Because I'm not going to kink shame here. But I will say that it is odd in the literal sense. It is it is unusual. Yeah, so I read that originally they were going to have him smoking helium. And then they're like, no, this is too... Like, the comedy's too much here. It's going too over the top here. And so it's more something like uh, amyl nitrate, I think they said, because that's, like, supposed to be, like, a more disorienting drug, like helium without, you know, the comedic voice. Yeah, that good, you know... Yeah, nobody wants to... <laughs> I'm just thinking now about uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The Oh, wait, you said that you barely can remember that movie, right? Because I think we talked about it before. 
I somewhat remember it, but I don't remember specific details. I kind of want to put that in the hat for our next movie marathon. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a moment where a villain takes helium, and like, man, if you know, you put Dennis Hopper in a PG, uh, like a PG movie or a movie that should have been PG thirteen, and get him jacked up on helium, that may be that character. Talking about performances, yeah, I agree that they are all pretty good. The only one I thought that was lacking a little bit, and it's not her fault. I think it was Laura Dern, actually. But I don't think that it was her fault because I think her character was written in a way that was a little bit more... I don't want to say... I'll say stereotypical. Like, she was definitely the stereotypical small-town girl, the the nice girl next door, and I think that's what she was given. And I think she, she did good at playing that role it's just not really the most uh, you know complex role yeah i even get the feeling that she was given a little bit more to do because david lynch you know obviously liked her put her in another movie i you know i think that she was given a little bit more scenes but because there's not too much with this character the the extra scenes kind of felt off uh even her crying seemed kind of off to me but then Mm -hmm. again i mean everybody's crying is off i guess Nobody looks like a good... Yeah. <laughs> the only one with like a real good cry is Florence Pugh. Like, who can do that all-out cry. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah, Laura Dern's all-out cry. It's like, um... Especially for, like, how quick she switches after that cry. I'm like, were you even feeling yeah. it that time? Well, that and she has, like, a monologue about she dreamt of Robin's coming and everything was light and sunshine and rainbows. And I was like, oh, my lord, what is this girl on? <laughs> You know, I thought that it would never fit in another movie, but you know what monologue would fit better in this movie? What? The 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 father of Santa Claus from Gremlins. <laughs> that would have fit perfect in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And you just you just have Gizmo there. <laughs> oh, like could you imagine Gizmo's reactions? Like if Gizmo was in blue velvet. <laughs> yeah, cuz you know how like when she's telling that story, even Gizmo's like, "Whoa." Like yeah. Now, how, now this movie did get some controversy based on the display of of sexual assault in here. How did you feel about it? Did you feel that? Yeah, just go ahead. How? What did you think of it? I, I didn't really know what to make of it because I honestly don't think at the time I was watching it, I fully understood what was happening. So I was like too confused to really think too much of it on that level. I I I understand. I get that. Actually, <laughs> I've, I've had a case like that before, not with sexual. Well, um, where it was just like the, it was so weird that I couldn't like really. No one could really piece together like what really happened and the severity of it because you're still trying to figure out what exactly happened. Yeah, and also it's just about like not really understanding the character either of Dorothy um because she has her own quirks right and obviously like this tackles themes of like um masochism in in sexual settings and not to say that you can enjoy that and you can still experience sexual assault, like, not to conflate that at all. But because I just didn't really understand the character and what this relationship between her and uh, and Frank was, I, I just don't think I really understood what I was viewing. 
Okay, I think I got it. Whether or not it was consensual or not, or if this is just something that happens and I'm missing something, if that makes sense. Yes, I think uh, it definitely wasn't consensual. And I think kind of knowing, I I can't remember my views when I first watched it, but this time watching it, I mean, he, he has some, he has leverage on her that we'll talk about in the spoilers. And that obviously, you know, takes away pretty much all consent. And what was happening, you know, yeah, it is confusing. And I think knowing more later on kind of helps with that, knowing that Frank does have this, I I don't know what else to call it. Someone's going to tell me the right answer, I'm sure. And I'm going to question why they know, but uh, a mommy kink. (laughs) <laughs> like he like has like a, a serious one like he wants to go back in the the womb type deal and yeah i got i got the impression while i was watching i'm like yeah no this isn't right like for some reason he has this this thing um you know over her but also i think another something that shows it not being consensual not being for her is that she's she kind of acts out the same behavior as her abuser which you do see in real life as well. Uh, there's her first conversation with Jeffrey. She's repeating a lot of the same lines that Frank is using. I think also just like I just didn't understand the power dynamic there. And I wasn't even sure which one of them was the one being sexually assaulted and sexually used. Because, I mean, obviously this is a noir, right? So I think my gut assumption is that Dorothy is a villain. That she's not the actual victim here. So, and also waiting for a Lynchian twist. Like, I was just not reading that scene how I think I would read it now, knowing the story. Okay, I see. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, I was kind of seeing that as it was playing out. Because when we do get introduced to her, she doesn't seem like a nice person. Uh, But then I think, like I said, immediately when you find out that she's repeating the lines of her abuser, of her assaulter, I think that shows that she, she is a victim here. But I think... Yeah, with noir films, you know, especially with the, you know, the female, uh, the femme fatales, you, you, you question them. But I think mm-hmm. the answer to that question here isn't that she's, um, it, that, not that she's evil, but she, she has issues. Like she's, she's part yeah. of this seedy underground. She's not, you know, she's not, she's not part of this light suburban neighborhood. That's, mm-hmm. that's not her. So she has her own, her own darkness in her but again with the blue velvet you know you can see it in dark or light so she doesn't seem like she's a totally a bad person but she's definitely mixed up with the wrong individual and her herself does have a little bit of a darkness in there and then when it comes to the the i always forget how to pronounce it mass masochism masochism we had an oh the hellraiser episode you helped me <laughs> through that word probably also a video room yeah video drum yeah <laughs> we talk Today, about this a lot <laughs> it has been our word of the episode three times which <laughs> only being a podcast for less than two years that makes you wonder what type of podcast we are <laughs> but i think that like i think she does have that king now was that king started by her abuser or did she have that before it's hard to tell because again she she's wrapped up in this world and what kind of person she is is questionable, but I, I think it is without doubt that she's a a victim here. And I think even, uh or nothing, I read an article and they said that actually what happened after assault, like when Jeffrey went over there, there was actually urine on the ground as well. And I think some, oh. some blood, but he picks up the, because they were talking about like how he picked up the party hat. Oh yeah, I didn't notice that at all. 
Yeah, no, I didn't either. So I'll have to go back. I don't know if that person was just kind of filling in some blanks. But yeah, I, I you know, I think it does answer, but it does make you think. And I see, yeah, especially what you said with the femme fatale uh, definitely kind of makes things confusing and keeps your interest in. Mm-hmm. Um, and for all its controversy, I never thought that the nudity or, or violence was glamorized in any way. Like, I think you see less explicit films that will actually go out of its way to glamorize nudity and violence. So I don't think that, like, the presence of it is necessarily exploitative. Um, and also for the nudity for her character, it was specifically shot so it wasn't trying to be, like, seductive. The actress said that this was really important to her, that she was portraying someone who was abused. So she mentioned in an interview that the image she actually wanted to portray with her nakedness of her nudity was more of like a cow carcass in a butcher shop cut in the open. What kind of butcher shops were there back in the days? Well, you know, you know, you've seen it in movies and stuff where there's just cows hanging from the... Not a cat. A cow. Oh, a cow. Who I thought you said a cat. A... Yeah, I Who thought you said, said a cat. <laughs> These earphones are slipping. A cow. <laughs> they said a cat in a butcher shop. That's why I was like, ugh. No. Wait, that's real. That's detailed. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, that's an important thing. I don't think it was glamorized at any point, and that's something you know we kind of talked about with Old Boy and Park Chan Wook, as far as like how he kind of there's like kind of like some uh, trauma or like there's there's something wrong going on, or he's trying to portray something, but at the same time, the sex seems like it's being more glorified, is like more there for pleasure than any kind of storytelling component. Yeah. Uh, here, you know, I don't. I mean. You, I'm sure there are some people out there, but most people when they watch this are not going to see any pleasure in this. Even yeah. when there is supposed to be a pleasurable scene because of like, because of you, you kind of, you, you know, what's going through the heads of the two characters. David Lynch has done a good job of, you know, showing you things up to that point for you to understand what would be going through the characters minds at this point And the little bit of dialogue that they gave that even that moment isn't pleasurable. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that, like I said, it's the, the underbelly, the seedy underbelly, like the nothing was really as it seems and everything has this tinge of darkness to it. But I don't think that he's saying that that's morally correct. Like he's not trying to say, well, we're all like this, so this we should all just embrace it. I think he's just saying that that there is a darkness in things. Yeah, and there are, no matter where you go, you know, there you know, I've seen the word evil a couple times while researching this movie, especially when it came to Frank, that, you know, there's... There's usually an evil presence. No matter where you are in the world, no matter how light it is, there's an evil presence somewhere. Hopefully for you, your evil presence that is close by is not Frank. Yeah, oh my gosh. <laughs> and if it is, I, I can only do, only can tell you one thing. Don't you look at him. Don't do it. <sighs> Don't do it. Wait a minute. Is that who they were seeing in the bird box? What is that? Was it Dennis Hopper? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the set design as well because the set design was was really interesting as well because I mean we don't have too many sets in this film. A lot of it takes place in Dorothy's apartment actually. And it's interesting cuz we talked about how the town itself had all these super vibrant colors, but when you get to her apartment, there's a lot of like muted tones, like muted maroon, kind of witchy, seductive tones, moody tones. Um, and the bar was kind of the same way as well. So there's definitely like there that juxtaposition there. Something I've noticed a lot with Lynch's films is a lot of times different sets will be very difficult to distinguish in between them. Like 
the two apartments for me looked exactly the same and I kind of like thought that they were like moving in circles but I've noticed that for other films of it as well but sets were look very similar to each other but I do think it adds to the like surrealist film idea like, it's all kind of hazy dreamlike yeah I agree yeah definitely dreamlike too because I was thinking about the lighting I'm like the lighting doesn't feel like because I, I, for for a while now I wanted to say stage like well it's not stage like mm-hmm. it's it's dreamlike Mm-hmm. Like where the light is focused is it is bringing emphasis on something and it does feel a bit unnatural, but it's not a spotlight. Now, what did you think of our main character in this film? Because I know you said you kind of saw him a little bit differently with your second watch for Jeffrey. Yes, I just saw him more as, you know, the second half of the, the juxtaposition. He really is kind of reflecting uh, the small town and it's, it's interesting watching that type of character go through this noir film, uh, I think with a lot of our noir films, we get a we get a mostly competent person. We get a competent person that's being challenged by what they're finding. We're, we're finding a strong, or we have like a strong-willed protagonist or a strong moral uh, protagonist. But Jeffrey, he's kind of, man, you really do feel like he's just a normal, he's just a normal kid. Or yeah, normal he's as not like, very bright. <laughs> also, that's the other thing. He's I, not very I, bright. <laughs> I said before, he's naive. There's... They do a thing where he holds up fingers for a blind guy to guess how many fingers he has or tell him. And you obviously see the guy behind him tap him on the back four times. And Jeffrey's still (laughs) like, man, I don't know how you do it. I'm like, God dang, Jeffrey, you're going to get murdered by the end of this movie. (laughs) Like... I don't hate Jeffrey at all. I enjoyed him as a character, but oh my gosh, the way I rolled my eyes at the, everything he said and did, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> Jeffrey, why? <laughs> why, Jeffrey? <laughs> You're an idiot, Jeffrey. <laughs> but I'll say Jeffrey had his step outside of his usual lines in this movie, and when he does, it doesn't feel like a big dramatic step, because even so, it's like... He's stretching, but he doesn't become a whole new character. Even the movie kind of suggests like maybe some of the some of that blue velvet is getting in his blood. But mm-hmm. there's another point like where he gets in a rough situation, and the whole time I'm like, God damn man, at least at least stand up straight. Come on, yeah. <laughs> but it, you know that's Jeffrey. That's <laughs> and Jeffrey. but but later in the film, you know he do, he does do something. You're like, all right, you know, I see you doing. I see you doing that much, you know, and he's not like a big action hero by the end of the film, nowhere close to it. He he stays, you know, he, he does, he does have a turn, not a turning, but he does have a development throughout this film. Yeah, it, it does feel like a natural development. Like it does feel like a natural outcome of someone who has lived in a small town, maybe hasn't seen a lot of the world, but now is getting challenged uh, and their worldview is kind of changing and they want to expand their worldview. So it makes sense for someone at his age in college. Speaking of age, Laura Dern was in college too, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> negative. <laughs> no, she she was. She said that she was. Oh, wait, no. The reason I started thinking she was in college is because she had a beer. She would, They were at a bar in public having a Heineken. And he said, mm-hmm. have you ever had Heineken before? Because this movie was sponsored by Heineken. At least a third yeah. of it. There's even a moment he goes to the bathroom. And he's like, God damn that Heineken. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's yeah. So she says like she never had a Heineken before. It made, and I think they said they went to a. Oh no no no! I was reading something else about a college party. But yeah, it was. I don't know. I was like, this is kind of this is kind of creepy. This is like Scott Pilgrim over here picking her up in high school. I'm guessing she's a senior. Yeah. 
But but no, the drinking age has always been. But it is a small town, I guess. You know, they allow the kids to drink if it's at the bar. Everybody trusts. I mean, that bar seemed pretty seedy. I don't think they were carding. What that bar looked like a regular bar, which mm. all of them look seedy, but <laughs> nobody was like getting thrown around in the background. <laughs> Anything else you want to say during the opinion? Like I said, I just really didn't trust anyone while watching this. Like I was just. I, you know, just expecting twists and turns and knowing it's a noir, I just felt like I couldn't trust anyone watching it. So that was pretty much the mindset that I went through watching this. I would say, too, what keeps this movie interesting and keeps you engaged is that, you know, you kind of know what you're going to get during the, the suburb, the light, the day, the daylight portions. And you do wonder, what is going to happen tonight? What is what is old Jeffrey going to get into? Like, what part of this and and I'll say like every incident yeah it's it's something else and it's something unpredictable yeah and I think there's some really well inte- uh, intense I, I like some good intense scenes and you know I, we were gonna do we were thinking about doing training day for this for this movie and if anybody's seen training day they know like the real the real tense moment in that movie that a character gets put in and it's much like the one Jeffrey gets put in in this movie and it's done really well this is an influential movie a bit. It, there are some things to be seen from its influence. Do you want to go ahead and start it off, Caitlin? Yeah, so a lot of films have made references to this film, including True Romance, Clerks, Dumb and Dumber, Dream Warriors, and several more. Uh, there's also films such as Reservoir Dogs and I Saw the Devil that have plot points concerning a severed ear that may or may not have been a reference to this film as well. One thing, one film in particular I noticed particularly had some connection to this film was the film Pleasantville from 1998. It's not obviously as explicit as this film, but they both kind of depict darkness of Kuwait suburban life. And just the way it's shot and has kind of a color commentary just really reminded me of that film, especially when it first opens up. I don't know if you've seen Pleasantville. I actually watched it in high school, I think. Yes, I've seen Pleasantville. Good movie. Okay. Did you also watch it in high school? No, I didn't. Uh, okay. All right. Lynch's own filmography, too, also is very much tied together artistically and thematically. But also, oftentimes his films are referenced places and names from his previous films. So, Mulholland Drive, for example, a character says she is a ta- from a town called Deep River. And in Blue Velvet, the apartment complex featured is called Deep River as well. So, he's definitely a director that likes doing different connections like that. Outside of film, uh, it also inspired Lana Del Rey to do a cover version of the Blue Velvet song in 2012. And I, I heard that the music video that accompanied the track um, was also influenced by the film and David Lynch, but I didn't get a chance to watch that, unfortunately, before we're recording. And then there's also other musical artists, mostly rock artists, that have referenced the film and their albums, including Rush... Um, and some other ones I've never really heard of before, but at Anfrax, Acid Bath, and Ministry. Like I said, not a big metal fan. I feel like most of them are probably metal or smaller rock bands. Yeah, you mentioned this influenced him, uh, David Lynch's filmography. It also, it was the big influence for Twin Peaks. You know, And I feel like that's what, uh, as far as like mainstream, that's really what David Lynch is known for is Twin Peaks, the mm-hmm. TV show. Which, Which I want to watch so, so bad, but it's not streaming anywhere. There's, I'm not going to record myself. I know what you're trying to do. I, I haven't found one I've tried. Yeah. 
because there is a movie Twin Peaks and then there's the TV show. And honestly, I didn't want to watch it at first because I was like, I'm just not. I don't know. I felt from my from my reading, I thought there was something else that I had to watch or know about to get into Twin Peaks or something. I, I don't know, but I have to take a look back at it, especially after watching this movie. I do want to see more of something like this and mm-hmm. if Twin Peaks was influenced by this and it's David Lynch you know yeah I'll be down to to take a look at it I really really want to watch Firewalk with me because I I just it always comes up in film conversations and it's it's gotten really good reviews but I actually have to watch the series first I don't <laughs> well, think, I think I've heard that really I've heard a lot it's uh, in the Criterion Collection as well but I think it's a prequel actually to uh, Twin Peaks I think Lynchians don't don't come for me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think you do need to probably be better off watching the series first, or at least that's how I would want to do it. Yes, yeah, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. That's the one where I'm like, okay, I think, yeah, you have to watch the prequel first and then you watch the the show. No, I think you can watch the show before the prequel. Oh, okay. I feel like that would make more sense. Because if it's a mystery, wouldn't the prequel give stuff away? Yeah, but Fire Walk With Me was done before the TV show. Was it? No, I don't think so. Didn't the Twin Peaks get a, like a TV series not too long ago? Yeah, there is a revival series, but I think that Fire Walk With Me came after the original show was made. Okay, but- alright. Kind of thing, even David Lynch has made his timeline confusing. <laughs> and speaking of fire, Caitlin, I'm going to go ahead and use that to segue. This is a line from this movie is a line uh have you ever heard of firefighter bill i have not from uh it's a jim carrey skit from living in color okay. uh, the show also with uh, <laughs> yeah uh it's also a show with the uh, wayne brothers and jamie fox i forgot caitlin your mother kept you away from the 80s shielded your eyes mm-hmm. while my mother was like you want to like take a look at this show and these people want it uh yeah, it's, it's a funny skit, and it's basically just Jim Carrey doing his Jim Carrey thing as a firefighter, and he's like, you don't want to do this because it can lead to doing this, and he's just like getting the shenanigans and hurting himself as much as possible, because he'd be like, um, you don't want to stick your hand in the outlet because this will happen and sticks his hand in the outlet. He's at a hospital, and he takes an oxygen mask, and he puts it on his face, and he's like, now look at me. I'm Dennis Hopper from Blue Velvet. Don't you look at me. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so I'll have to put that one on our on our social media. Yeah, definitely. Which you guys should be following. Uh, there's also a movie called Blue Velvet Revisited. A German filmmaker who had worked on Blue Velvet, though it just says that he's an additional intern. But for some reason, he has like uh, he has the film from this movie, like actual film and some other photography. I think he was an editor. It, it seems like he was an uncredited editor as well for this movie. He takes a look back at this movie after 35 years. The movie was... Uh, Blue Velvet Revisited in 2016. Now, did you find anything for significance? Because I'll be honest, I mean, other than this movie just being like known as one of the best noir films out there, just kind of being one of these must-see films and something different than most, something that's unique, I didn't find anything for significance. Um, Yeah, I found a couple things. So some people have mentioned this film as being a reaction to... Uh, American nostalgia, particularly during the Reagan era after the Vietnam War and all that came with it. It was kind of a time when Reagan wanted to return America to a better time. 
sound familiar, uh, like the 1950s and the small 1950s neighborhood. So Lynch was really kind of subverting this idea by showing that darkness in an idealized time. And, and like we said, we see the 1950s played out. He said that chromatic optimism, we get to see the technicolor vibes in the beginning, and then he just subverts it. So it, it's interesting. And also, I think it's interesting just that so much of film... Like, a lot of our great American films have come some in some aspect as a reaction to Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, it is one of the really important times uh, in films. Like you mentioned with Reagan. Reagan did have a... Because Reagan himself came from... He was the one with the monkey, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, but he also had an influence on on Hollywood and on, on media. Uh, there's some other times in history as well, but... Reagan was was known to put some, you know, have some influence there to have influence on the on the country. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, that was just a it was also just a really controversial time and a time that a lot of people had commentary about the country itself. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why we keep talking about it, because if you're going to make a film about, you know, talking bad about the United States, not talking bad about it, but showing things, putting negative things into light about the U.S., the Vietnam era is probably, it, it is one of the most controversial periods in the U.S. Yeah, and I think that the issue is that they wanted to almost revert back to a time before the 60s. You know, let's ignore the 60s. Let's just pretend we're back in the 1950s. We're in this idealized time uh, when America was great. Uh, and so Lynch coming in and saying, well, actually, this kind of suburban, idyllic neighborhood, like, isn't really what you think it is like there's darkness on the underbelly of like any time period that we look back on nostalgically yeah even now if you were to look back on it and when i say a controversial time in america I also mean a controversial time in which we had media yeah there's more controversial times but it's really mm-hmm. hard to you know make commentary on the genocide of native americans when film cameras weren't around so there are yeah. like, uh and then also yeah there was um there was a a social shift as well, like you mentioned, the 60s. 60s isn't just a time period. The 60s were is lifestyle. <laughs> and and not everybody wanted to wanted to go into this new lifestyle. They wanted to go back to at least what they remember being great because it was great for them because mm-hmm. like in this movie, if you're living above that CD underground, if you're living in that suburban neighborhood, if you're went if you're with Aunt Barbara, things are nice. Yeah. But you're not taking into account everything below. You're not taking into account the the ears you find on the ground, you just keep walking. You never look, never look down. And mm-hmm. I just thought about that. You know, Jeffrey, he's, he was looking down at that time. Yeah. And it's because also like films like Stepford Wives and stuff like that, um, that kind of do kind of a similar idea with it. And also like the 50s too, like people always talk about like housewives and, you know, return to the greatness there. And it's like, well, they were all on drugs. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, so were the 60s. But also, all those, <laughs> a lot of those women are about to lose their minds. Well, I'm saying that in the 50s, they were all on drugs because that was the only way they can really get by in yes. the suburban 50 housewife culture. Yeah, because if your wife was, you know, if she was depressed, uh, I've read a book or a short story recently. I know I don't think it's called Yellow Wallpaper, but it's about this yellow wallpaper. And it's about this woman Wait, feeling... Go ahead. Was it the yellow wallpaper? I think it may have been. There is a short story called The Yellow Wallpaper. Okay, okay, it is The Yellow Wallpaper. A woman wallpaper. who's staring at a yellow wallpaper. 
Yeah. Okay. So they 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 just named the, named it what it is. Uh, yellow mm-hmm. wallpaper. And that's kind of the thing that like yeah, your wife's depressed. Well, just you know, go on vacation for a little bit. That will fix everything. It's, there's no problem at home, of course. Prescribe and then some also, opium. It's fine. Yeah, because you used to because the husband used to be able to go to the doctor. And they used to think of ways to help out the wife. The wife never had a choice <laughs> in it. But, of course, you know, men being the, the majority, the patriarchy, whatever. Yeah, if you look back at it, for, for those people, it was a great time. Like, if I was if I was them. Oh, well, I don't think that's true. I think that even the people that appear to be doing well in this society, even they have their own dark side to them. Which is what I think Lynch is trying to say. Um... Yeah, I think for some, but I think for the majority, it's just, I think I think a lot of the characters, yeah, there were some that had this kind of duality going on, the duality of man, but most of them, they were just, you know, they weren't looking around. And like, just like I said, Aunt Barbara, those people, yeah, would love to go back to that time because things were, were peaceful. If you get pulled into another one, and yeah, like you say, you want to go back to a greater time for yeah. you. But I, I think it's all a facade. I think that's... Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, what Lynch is mostly trying to say, or not say, I don't know. Lynch is very much up to interpretation. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I would say for Lynch, yeah, it's, um, he is showing more of the facade. I, I, I started getting more into, like, why people want to go back to, quote-unquote, greater greater times. Uh, for some, it Yeah, but I think, time. like, my thing is that people will look back fondly to housewives and say, oh yeah, housewives, they had it all, they were living this peaceful life, they were so privileged, uh... But really, they're all drugs. That's what I'm saying is that like even things that appear to be perfect and we have a nostalgia for, they weren't actually that. Speaking of Aunt Barbara, I love the line. <laughs> He's like, all right, guys, I know. I don't want to talk about it. And then Aunt Barbara tries to talk. She's like, Aunt Barbara, I love you, <laughs> but you're going to get it. I know. That was great. <laughs> yeah, the don't you look at me line has been rated as one of the top 100 movie lines. I forget by what. Uh, publicist, but I'm like, no, that Aunt Barbara one is even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that part too. Yeah, that's the moment kind of where you're like, is he turning into Frank? Because that's something Frank would say, just with a few more F-bombs. Yeah. I did also want to mention, just with the shocking content, I think that's also of interest with it being a film from the 80s, uh, because we did see a little bit more of a new wave of censorship in general in the 80s. And Tarantino actually has a book where he talks of the 80s being a decade where people were playing it safe. Uh, He said that obviously the 50s were quite a time for film censorship, but he also noticed a regression in the 80s where filmmakers and studios were really holding their punches, um, which we know also might have been due to like the home video market, like we saw from the video Nasties in Britain, which is also an 80s era. So he, in general, noted that characters definitely weren't as complex because of it, but when it came to Lynch, he said that he was one of the artists who were more uncompromising in their work. And, you know, something with Lynch is that he was so disappointed in the way dune came out uh dune was his previous film and it didn't do so well and he didn't really have as much creative freedom and so he knew that he really wanted more say when it came to blue velvet and so the film's budget was originally supposed to be 10 million but lynch actually agreed to cut the budget as well as his salary in order to have complete artistic control 
And so they were like, all right, we'll do that with the condition that the film is no more than two hours long. So the budget was lowered to six million and the film is 120 minutes long. And there is, like I said, there is 50 minutes that there are um, of footage out there with another hour and 10 minutes lost. But I think this movie is a good length. I think so, too. I mean, I could I could take a little bit more. I could do it a little bit more. I don't think I need 50 minutes more. But I I could see some parts needed a little bit more. I've read what they were about, and I think they don't make too much of a difference, but I think they okay. do help out with some characters. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely take 50 more minutes of Frank. <laughs> Actually, I don't know about that. Just, eh, maybe yeah, just 15 minutes. I don't minutes. know about that. Yeah. I just thought about it. It's funny because right now, or at least you know, for like the last decade, there's been this nostalgia about the 80s. But in the 80s, they had nostalgia for the 50s. Mm-hmm. So, like, like, no one's happy with where we're at. Yeah, I'm about to <laughs> say, like... that's the moral of the story. At a point, you just gotta admit, you're just unhappy where where you are <laughs> right now. Not because of the time, just because of your current situation. Yep. Going back in time is not... Well, for some people, going back in time can help out. Mostly for businessmen. When, you know, like, there were no laws... No unions, <laughs> no restrictions, yeah. no uh, no trust, no restrictions on, uh, no restrictions on trust, no restrictions on monopolies. Now those those were the times. <laughs> those were the times. <laughs> Who would you recommend this for? Ooh, uh, I I don't think I would give it to a general audience unless you're able to watch more things that might just be a little bit weird and unsettling um because i don't think that you necessarily have to be a cinephile to to really gain something from this film or understand this film um but it is out there so it's not something that i'm going to recommend to everyone yeah it definitely is out there and i'm just because of the material but just yeah it's a bit out there (laughs) Uh, i would also give a, a content warning as well for this movie a, a you know kind of a trigger warning for anybody uh this definitely can be there's you know there's explicit scenes of sexual assault and abuse so if you are sensitive to that i definitely want to recommend the movie mm-hmm. but um that aside i would recommend this yeah closer to cinephiles some general audience some general audience that i know That'd yeah be. yeah though honestly now i think about it it would be like you who is a cinephile <laughs> like someone who's like they're like just about to fall over to cinephile and you want to mess with them and kind of bring them back and make them question themselves yeah i was trying to i was trying to think of how would frank introduce these spoilers oh gosh just talk like a child You'll you know what good. caitlin go ahead play the go ahead and play the what was it the color fla- the color face clown oh gosh the color face sandman <laughs> the clown yeah the clown i think it was something clown something color something sandman yeah something like that <laughs> yeah go ahead play that and we're gonna go ahead we'll get some chick to stand on top of the car along with these spoilers <laughs> i would be we'll talk that about girl we'll talk about some more let me make sure everybody's gone let me let me clear out this room uh if you have not seen the movie a don't continue further if you uh have seen the film hey continue joining with us continue staying here get yourself a hit of uh this oxygen mask uh if you don't care about spoilers you're i'm not gonna king shame continue on continue on through 
Yeah, that chick on top, like, I'll be so mad if I was getting the crap beat out of me. And I looked ahead, <laughs> and there's just some chick just, just having a good old time dancing on the top of the car. Like, I lost I? my mind at that scene. I think that's my favorite part in the whole movie. <laughs> I was losing it. And, like, she wasn't even, like... <laughs> Like, she wasn't really even right into it, either. No. <laughs> like, I just didn't understand. She's like, this is my cue. She's like, hey, Like, no she's like, I, I, I want to do this. I want to do this, and I'm not going to stop. But also, I'm going to make it as unenthusiastic as possible. <laughs> hey, you want to see your jam? It's your jam. Like, no I may not have situation. the energy for it, but I'm standing on this car. <laughs> I lost my mind. <laughs> Uh, one scene that I really liked is when he's asking him for a joyride. Basically, that whole joyride night is great. Uh, there was a video I saw. I can't find it. I've been searching for it for years. I'm about to just message. I saw it on a show. I'm about to just, you know, send an email out to him. Be like, hey, like, where did you where did you find this clip? Because it's like, I, it must have the worst tags ever. Because I typed in every bit I could. But it's like this kid's cartoon of a, it's this dragon talking to this kid. It's obviously a kid cartoon. Uh, but they do the voiceover of of Frank and Jeffrey. And as Frank is the dragon, he's just coming over. He's like, you want to go for a joyride? He's like, uh, no. No what? No, I don't want to go on a joyride. Now, joyride. That's a great idea. Let's go. And then just they do some more of the, the voiceover of him just, yeah, man, the way he messes with that kid. I'm trying to think if I know what you're talking about. It's It's when Frank catches him at the... Wait, are you trying to think of the dragon or are you trying to think of that scene? The dragon, the dragon. Okay. <laughs> it was an old cartoon. It was like, we're talking about like, it looked like it was animated with like literal crowns to a paper. Like, you know how mm-hmm. like it, like it, the colors weren't completely filled? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where do you want to start off with? Well, where do you want to continue with spoilers after the chick on the car? Uh, <laughs> um. So like I said, I didn't really trust Dorothy throughout this film. And... Part of the the reason why I didn't trust her either is because we're told that her husband and her son have been taken hostage by Frank. And there's a couple of times when she interacts with her child, one, on the phone, so we only hear her from her perspective on the phone. And then there's another time when she goes into the room and you hear her talking to the child, but you never see the child. We never hear the child. And I was like, this child can't exist, right? Like, this child definitely does not exist. <laughs> yeah, you go in there, it's just a, a child skeleton on a rocking chair. Like, that's, like, I was thinking, like, is it a doll? Like, something is not right here. Like, this can't be a real child. <laughs> but it turns out it's a real child and there's a real husband. Yeah, so, like, it, like, really shocked me because I just wasn't expecting Dorothy to be what was expected is like or or not for me but from everyone else (laughs) and also just the fact that jeffrey was able to connect the dots about oh yeah so frank has her children hostage and this is what's going on i'm like jeffrey you're an idiot so i don't really trust anything that you put together (laughs) actually i was like jeffrey that is okay jeffrey you're (laughs) one of those book people (laughs) i was like there's no way he's right about this (laughs) Jeffrey is like, uh, not fully like, but kind of the, I've seen, just seen clips of it, but the good doctor, the, the one that's autistic. Oh gosh. Oh dear Lord. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Jeffrey was on the spectrum. Uh, Jeffrey, 
Jeffrey also is a major F boy, I put in my notes. He uh he's quite the player for poor poor Laura Dern. <laughs> I, I took that as like he uh... <laughs> He thought he wanted part of this world. He thought he wanted to be with Dorothy Dorothy, or at least he was enjoying the time. But then he realized like this this isn't me. Like I gotta get out of here and he chooses Laura. Lord Dern. After, yeah. after, after he puts his disease in her. God, Keelan. All right, that's the only time we'll say it. Not again. I don't <laughs> want to hear that again, ever, in my life. I was like, you mean to tell me you didn't use protection with this crazy woman? <laughs> well, you probably did. She probably took it off. Ah, uh, Lord. So he's cheating on Lord Dern. And Lord Dern finds he's out. He's not cheating on her. I mean, okay, not, mm, he's being sketch. He didn't cheat on her because technically they weren't together, but all of a sudden it's like, oh, I love you. We both love each other. Yeah, it's that movie, I'm I Love You, that comes out of nowhere. I'm not sleeping with this girl at this right time. <laughs> um, Yeah, so he, like, Laura Dern finds out, and then she, like, just is, like, upset for, like, a quick second, and then the next scene she's like, you know what, I forgive you because I just am so in love with you, and I'm like, what is happening here? I, I told I you like, that movie love. Stand up, <laughs> Lord Dern, girl. Please stand up. <laughs> it's that it's that movie love gets you gets uh, you crazy. But I did like you know again. I, I can only hit it. I can only knock it for so many points in a movie because you do have a short amount of time. And mm-hmm. I I I think you know at least what I got from it is that symbolism of him not wanting to be a part of this. Like mm-hmm. this this was interesting, but not when it shows up at your doorstep. And even before then. He was questioning it. And I th- I really do think that, you know, at a point he was like, yeah, I do love you, Laura Dern, or you are who I want to be with. You are, this is the world that I want to be in. I guess. So we got to the end of the film after everything is resolved. And uh, it, it, Jeffrey and, um, I'm saying Laura Dern, I forget her name was in the movie. Their characters are just, you know, blissfully happy. Their families are just having a day. And uh, one of her dream robins comes up and you know the sun's all clear and and whatnot but i don't know like there's still something like haunting about that ending because someone was like oh yeah this indicates that the light has conquered the darkness i saw that in review and i was like i don't think that's it because there's still like this weird haunting quality to this blissfulness that they're experiencing so like i don't you know you can't really trust anything that's gonna happen after the credits roll like, you just don't know. You just had distrust in this whole movie. By the way, her name is Sandy. Sandy. Yes, Sandy. Yeah, I like, I can't. I can't. <laughs> I couldn't trust anything. I mean, I tr- I think it was a good ending. I think it's the one of the times, like, David Lynch is, like, really like, guys, I'm not trying. No, there's nothing else. It's just, that's the end. Uh, <laughs> I Caitlin's over there, like, mm, you're up to something. True. You're up to something, David Lynch. <laughs> this is too weird, too haunting. Um, even the cops in this film, so originally Sandy's dad, the, is he, he's a detective, he's not the sheriff, right? Yes, detective. Okay, so he's a detective, and, like, he originally went with him with the whole ear issue, and he was like, look, you can't ask me anything more about this, you can't, like, let's not talk about this, and I understand his reasoning, like, from a realistic point of view, but I'm like, this is a movie. He's definitely crooked. He's definitely in on whatever is going on. But I was wrong with that, too. I mean, I wasn't wrong that the cops were involved. There was a seedy cop who was involved in this whole, like, scandal. 
<laughs> and but it wasn't who I expected. So I'm like, oh my gosh, can I get anything right about this film? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like that that person who jokes all the time, and then they're they're really trying to do something serious. And you just ah, what are you up to? <laughs> yeah, is there that a snake was in this can. Yeah, no, I mean, what we do find out somebody is corrupted, but it's not him. So maybe that's the subversion there. Yeah. Or, you know, he's playing on the subversion. He's doing the the two lefts, which make a right, or they don't make a right. <laughs> if it's a subversion of the subversion, yeah. it's still subvertive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dear Lord. Hey, I don't know. I think Lynch, this film, like, broke my mind more of an Inland Empire did, I think. Just because, like, I just couldn't trust anything that I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like David Lynch gave you acid, but you didn't trip out, but you still suspected everything. Like, he still took you out for a joyride. <laughs> like, I don't, like, is this real? Yep, that that's that's it. Anything else you want to talk about while spoilers are up? Uh, no, not really. Not a spoiler. One other thing I forgot to mention is that Dorothy obviously takes her name from Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz and you see her with like red shoes and stuff and so there's like a commentary there about like oh she's taking him into this new world she's trapped in a dream kind of those commentary that I thought was interesting but I didn't really pick up on until I read about it later all right this is my final Frank joke but I'm just now imagining I was like which character would Frank be in the Wizard of Oz and I thought he would be the wizard at the end when Dorothy is about to ask him for a wish, and he's just like, don't you look at me. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's him. <laughs> Which is pretty much the, the Wizard of Oz, because he's like, don't go behind that curtain. Yep. Don't you look at me. Which Lynch has, I don't know, because I know Wild at Heart, his film, had a Wizard of Oz reference to, and it's supposed to be inspired by Wizard of Oz. Um, so it's interesting there, but he's just really, really, really inspired by Wizard of Oz. <laughs> And some people, there's some other people out there like that. They just have that one movie. They got to have it in everything. Let's see, uh, Do you think this film holds up? Yeah, I do. I don't think there's really anything that would make it not hold up. I mean, visually, it definitely does. Um, yeah, I think it does. I do too. And I think that the, the surrealism and the, well, not surrealism, but the surreal look to it helps it out as well. Kind of makes it almost almost timeless. Or it's... Yeah. We're all really familiar with this suburban look. Mm-hmm. You know what would have been a good movie to show that, that fake cave, though? Uh, if it worked the, out and really... what? Uh, facade. <laughs> God dang it. I, I can't... I got no excuse. I was reading words in my mind. And, <laughs> at least I haven't said photography on uh, while being recorded yet on the air. I've said photography sometimes. Like instead of photography? Yeah. Like I'll just read oh. the word and I'm like, photography. God dang, that's not right. It's not until I get yeah. to the why. There definitely are some words that you learned from reading that you pronounce wrong in real life. Yeah. Uh, a movie that would have been really good for that facade that you were talking about to like really hit home with it uh, would have been Don't Worry, uh, Don't Worry Darling. Yeah. That could have hit on okay. some really strong commentary and could have had... More of a David Lynch field, and it looked like they kind of try to do all of David Lynch's visuals with none of the the commentary or the uh, yeah. the content. Yeah, that's that was definitely a disappointment. We would have had a better crier too. 
<laughs> True. What do you give this film overall? Um, I'm gonna give it a B minus. Like I said, I think visually and everything that he did with his film is just really spectacular. So that does just bring it up for me. Like I said, I'm just a little disappointed. I think maybe if I watched it again, I might rate it higher. But just like I said, coming from Inland Empire, I'm like, eh. <laughs> I just wanted something more. I wanted something more. Um, although this just definitely did mess with my brain in other ways. So I don't know. But yeah, B, I, B minus. All right. I'm right above you. I'll give this a solid B. I don't think there's anything that really knocks this film down aside from, you know, there's just some things, there's nothing that keeps it away from being higher, but there isn't that, there isn't anything that brings it much higher. And I I think like, you know, the the things that are great in here, keep it at that solid B. That doesn't even make me question, you know, taking it down, such as Dennis Hopper's performance, uh, Jeffrey as the protagonist, the juxtaposition between the CD underground. I should have looked up synonyms for CD. I'm sorry, guys. The Shady Underground. Let's go with that. Uh, the Shady Underground and the Suburban Neighborhood. Caitlin, what is our next episode? Next week, we're tackling a very well-known action movie with a very well-known action star. We're going to be talking about First Blood. That's Rambo First Blood. So I'm pretty interested to see how that goes. Actually, it's First Blood, but known as Rambo First Blood. That's what I said. You made it sound like the title is actually Rambo First Blood. Oh, sorry. That's what I meant. <laughs> First Blood, part of the Rambo franchise. Yeah. Yeah, I, I too was confused. Yeah, I was too, because I didn't realize that was what the first one was called, but it makes sense. I didn't uh, realize a lot of things about the first one. That <laughs> Same. Yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll definitely talk about that. But until then, you can find us on our social media you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Op Silver Screen. On Facebook, we're at Operation Silver Screen. But on Twitter and Instagram, that's Op Silver Screen. You can also find us on our personal letterboxes if you want to take a look at some of the films that we're watching throughout the week. Maybe see some reviews for films that we don't get a chance to talk about on here. For Bryant, you can find him at Swank Seal. That's capital S, capital S. And for me, I'm at Coffee Spoon Kate. That's Coffee Spoon C-A-I-T. Till then, we'll be examining human ears in HQ. I'm so glad we do movies and not that. But who knows? Maybe one of these days the movies will go ahead and take us to a underground society that we didn't know about. Uh, I think I'll pass on that one. <laughs> uh, there's some movies that are going to take us there. <laughs> so till that time, I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. See you. See you.